In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order, order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. the first word whatever the virtues <laughs> whatever the virtues in many okay, fields of knowledge the holy steps on the stages on the path of omniscience may these appear in the clear mirror of intellectual manjushri please do this now <laughs> this is what happens when you go on retreat huh this is totally what happens it's just sort of blank mind <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we had a great retreat. There were like uh, three people that gained uh, enlightenment. And there were four people that achieved complete shamatha. It's pretty cool. It's pretty good results. <laughs> Too bad you guys weren't there. But <laughs> a dharma without credentials. There you go. Crushed. <laughs> okay. We are on substantial and imputed mental factors, which has some interesting stuff in it. In my book, it's chapter 13 in this part, which is something or other. Um, I guess this is part two, chapter 13, substantial imputed mental factors, page 175, although it's not labeled as such. And among these mental factors, depending on whether they're posited in terms of their own distinct nature or imputed on the basis of an aspect or function of other mental factors, the text distinguished between substantial mental factors uh, versus imputed. There are various explanations of the distinctions between substantially existent and imputedly existent. This was the best part. Because we see this term substantial and imputed existence of, in other places. So what are they? Uh, let's see. We will follow the uh, version presented in the Sangha's Compendium of Ascertainments, Vinishchaya some graha or something like that which is as follows something is imputedly existent if it can be identified only in relation or identifying relation to identifying something else something is substantially existent if it's on its own if it can be identified without having to identify something else the quote basically repeats that so i'll skip that generally from the point of view of its usage there are four different senses in which the term substantial existence is implied in the sense of being established by reasoning in the sense of being capable of functioning in the sense of being stable and not subject to change and substantial existence in the sense of being self-sufficient among these the first refers to all objects of knowledge. So the first is substantial existence in the sense of being established by reasoning is 
all objects of knowledge are established by um, reasoning, right? In the Sarvasta, we're in Sarvasta Vada world where everything exists, right? And then uh, the second refers to all functioning things. So in the sense of uh, being capable of functioning, sort of tautology. The third refers to all permanent phenomena not changing, not subject to change. And the fourth refers to substantially existent things within the fundamental, sorry, within the aforementioned binary distinction of substantially existent versus imputedly existent. Uh, so that's the complicated one, self-sufficient. What is self-sufficient? So we'll get to that. Imputed has four senses, imputed on parts. Derek, could you yes, please tell me what page we're on? Sure, we're on page 176. Okay, thank you. And we just began the second chapter, I'm uh, sorry, the first full paragraph that starts with likewise. Imputed ex uh, existence also has four senses. Imputed based upon parts. We've seen dependence described this way in other classes, like the Nagarjuna class where we read about uh, Swabhava. Um, Imputed on parts, imputed on circumstances, imputed despite being non-existent, and imputed in some other fashion. The first of these refers to mental factors that are imputedly existent within the aforementioned binary distinction of substantial versus imputed. But the the um, within the aforementioned binary distinction. Uh, we have to come back to that. The second refers to what is imputed on changing circumstances. So the first was on parts. And so it says, um, are imputedly existent with the affirmation, within the aforementioned binary distinction of substantially versus imputedly existent. And imputed on parts is the is sort of hint, is that things that are imputed on parts are, are imputed, are, it's things that are dependent on their parts are imputedly existent, and things that are not dependent on their parts are things that are substantially existent and self-sufficient. The second part of the uh, aspect of imputed existence, which was imputed on characteristics, refers to what is imputed on changing circumstances, such as an impermanent vase. The third refers to what is imputed by mind, even though it is non-existent, such as our favorite, the rabbit's horn. And the fourth refers to something such as a person that must be cognized in relation to positing something else. So independence on something else. Something is said to be substantially existent by reason of being self-sufficient, and that it can appear to the mind without needing to rely on anything else as a basis of imputation. So that's the most important part of the whole evening, in my humble opinion, is understanding substantial self-existent, substantial self-sufficient existence, which is a major 
uh, topic in the exploration of emptiness of phenomena. Something is said to be imputedly existent because it becomes an object of the mind in dependence on something else that is the basis of imputation appearing to the mind. Just to make sure we're all clear, the basis of imputation of a table or let's say a chair, what's the basis of imputation of a chair? That chair? Yeah, or all but, chairs? Well, we'll say more about the chair. What makes, it, what makes it a chair? Sorry, Cynthia. What makes it a chair? A thing with four legs and or some number of legs and a flat thing on top of those legs and maybe it has a back so you don't think it's a stool. Right. So the, the basis of imputation of a chair is whatever, however, whatever characteristics of the phenomena that has that we consider to make it a chair. Um, so we look at, we look at the phenomena around us or we hear them, you know, like on the basis of, uh, the sound of a bell, we distinguish a doorbell because of the way it sounds. You know, that's a, a, a an example from the world of sound, from the world of sight. We distinguish a computer as having, um, a keypad and a screen. You know, and, and so that these are the bases of imputation, a tree based on a trunk and branches. And upon that basis of experiencing those parts, we impute treeness, chairness, computerness, and so forth. And so the idea is that some, some phenomena are not, uh, as they say here, let's, let's conform to their, description something something is so Cynthia was demonstrating the the uh, imputation of a cat based upon the appearance of fur claws whiskers and four legs something like that and a tail thank you something is said to be substantially existent by reason of being self-sufficient so those are synonymous in in this sense well I mean, they give other other types of substantial existence, but the main one is self-sufficiency. And it's self-sufficient in that it can appear to the mind without needing to rely on anything else. Just like, you know, the notion of, bless you, of self-sufficiency in uh, our world. You know, you're self-sufficient. I don't need anything else. You okay? Do you need anything? No, I'm good. <laughs> I'll take care of myself. Somebody is said to be imputedly existent because it becomes an object of the mind in dependence on something else that is the basis of its imputation that appears to the mind. Higher and lower Abhidharma each have their own explanation as to which mental factors are substantially existent and which are imputed. In the higher, a song this compendium of knowledge explains that out of the 51 mental factors, 22 are substantially existent. This was interesting which ones they excluded from substantial existence. The five omnipresent mental factors are substantially existent. The five with a determinate object, seven of the, uh, seven of the eleven, seven eleven virtuous ones 
and they list the ones that are, and five of the six root afflictions leaving out view. View is not self-sufficiently substantial. And uh, five of the six root, oh, sorry, in contrast, 29 are characterized as imputed. Four of the 11 virtuous ones, non-delusion, heedfulness, equanimity, and non-violence, as well as view that is a root affliction, the 20 secondary afflictions, and the four changeable factors. Just a little uh, quick question. Do you remember upon what basis are the um, secondary afflictions deemed to be imputed? You looking at the four types of imputation up above? Uh, yeah, Mary Beth. Is it the second one? Because they... Imputed in circumstances, they arise when those arise. Yeah, bingo, yeah, that's what I'd say. Right? They're not... They, it's not on parts, because they're not matter, and mind doesn't really have parts to it. But, so yeah, thanks. Um, although, yes, ma'am? Going back to the substantial, self-sufficient ones, it's... Of, of the seven of 11 virtuous ones, it seems like shame and embarrassment would be dependent on something else. It, it doesn't seem like those would be arising on their own. Yeah, I, I mean, some of their lists, some of their distinctions are not uh, generally um, self-evident, let's say. Yeah. We have self-sufficient and self-evident, and some of them are odd. They do give a little further explanation of it, as we'll go through, and we'll let's remember to look at those. Cynthia. Can I ask a question? I'm, I'm, maybe I'm dense, but I'm going back to the very first part of the sentence. Can you give like an example? I'm not sure I fully understand what type of other thing is, you know. Um, they're talking about in terms of being um, required outside of the self-sufficient thing itself. Like in other words, it says something can appear to the mind without needing to rely on anything else versus it relies on something else. So what kind of a something else are we talking about? Like, yeah. is there an example that you can give? I just want to make sure I'm actually understanding what all these words yeah, he's, they're just about to explain that. So if we go one more paragraph. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I just, explain that. Yeah. And it's a very interesting uh, question and issue. So let's see. Although texts of the higher Abhidharma system explain the 20 secondary afflictions to be imputed, some followers of the Shravaka path explain these to be substantially existent mental factors, as mentioned in. Pratiti Bandhu's explanation about the five aggregates. And this was an interesting quote where it's in a text by a guy who's of the higher Abhidharma, but he says, in this regard, although the proponents of the Shravaka system say that the secondary afflictions too are substantially existent, according to the proponents of the mind-only system who view all consciousness as consciousness only since the secondary afflictions arise from the sixth root, one should understand them to be 
only imputed and not substantially existent factors. So for one, it's like the quote is about the mind only system, but they're using it as a, dim, as a statement about the Shravaka system because he refers to that. I just thought that was interesting, but um, uh, skipping that. So as to which one is imputed on the basis of which this is as follows, non-delusion, afflictive view, and lack of meta-awareness are imputed only on wisdom. So uh, under the circumstances of there being wisdom, then um, non-delusion appears. If, uh, afflictive view appears uh, in contradistinction to wisdom and lack of meta-awareness on in contradistinction to wisdom. Let, let's keep going. Let's, let's read a few of them and then talk about them. So heedfulness and equanimity are imputed on the three root virtues and diligence. So within the situation of uh, the three root virtues having arisen, then heedfulness and equanimity arise. And um, without those, the, the idea is that uh, since they're non -sub not substantially existent, they're only imputedly existent, they, um, those virtues of heedfulness and equanimity only are able to uh, be recognizable or identifiable to the consciousness apprehending them by virtue of appearing when there is also the appearance of the three root virtues and diligence. That's my understanding of what they're saying. It's way easier in the when in the world of matter, right? You know, we went through all these examples of a table and so forth. And that was dependence on parts. And then uh, these seem to be dependent on circumstance that when this is present, then that other feature is distinguishable as being heedfulness and so forth. That's the way I, I understood it. If you have any other way of interpreting it, let me know. No, no, I think that that's that helps. Thank you. Are the three root virtues here in contemplating meditating? No. You know, they don't say what the three root virtues are. Any guesses on the three root virtues? Is would it be the opposite of the three poisons? That was my thought. Oh. Yeah. Non-hatred, non-aggression, non-stupidity or ignorance, depending on how you want to view those. That's what I thought, and diligence. Uh, Non-violence is imputed on non-hatred. So non-hatred is the the uh, foundation or the circumstance upon which then non-violence appears. Rage, resentment, spite, jealousy, and violence are imputed on anger. Avarice, arrogance, and excitation are imputed on attachment. Concealment, dullness, faithlessness, and laziness on delusion. Guile and pretense on attachment and delusion. Shamelessness, non-embarrassment, and distraction on all the three poisons and heedlessness is imputed on the three poisons together with laziness. Forgetfulness is imputed 
did I just mute myself? No. Um, is imputed on afflictive mindfulness, sleep, and afflictive regret that are included in the secondary inflictions are imputed on delusion. The virtuous mental factors and the non-afflictive neutral ones are imputed on wisdom. And inquiry and analysis are imputed on intention and wisdom. And this manner of imputing mental factors can be understood from the way these mental factors are defined in the compendium of knowledge by a song as cited above. So I was, in a sense, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was imagining some sort of neat chart that sort of would like uh, like a tree or something that would show like which ones are the roots and which one are the branches. But Cynthia. Well, I was just going to say, is this essentially the whole relationship thing that the that that besides when you start out with the lists and then you get into the relationships of all these different factors. And so essentially that's what this is talking about. Is, yeah, this is like a, like the skeleton of the conditional relations, I believe. Uh, yeah, okay, it's starting to make more sense. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. The way those charts that I shared and that website present the conditional relationship, it was really hard to weed that out of it. I should find a, a little article that describes and there is a little booklet. Let me, uh, let me do that. That would be interesting. But you're right, a diagram would be good. <laughs> that would be fun, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> I was sort of envisioning like they have those those dance troops where, you know, people standing on each other's shoulders, you know, right. that, those kind of pile-ups that they yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. people. <laughs> and that's kind of what I was thinking about when they talk about these things. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay. In the compendium of ascertainments, however, the imputedly existent mental factors are referred to as conventionally existent. So there, Sangha views the terms imputedly existent and conventionally existent as synonymous and substantially existent and ultimately existent as synonymous, right? And so skipping that quote, And the next quote, uh, but but not the third quote where it says, and on 178, suppose someone asks among the secondary afflictions, how many are conventional? Oh, let's see, does that add anything? Not really, sorry, that's just a listing. Okay, so skipping that quote as well. However, in the com explanation in the song is compendium of basis, that explanation differs slightly from the compendium of knowledge. The text states that non-delusion within the category of 11 virtuous mental factors and shamelessness, blah, 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 within secondary afflictions are substantially existent. The reason given is because they have a stronger potency than the secondary afflictive mental factors. So what do they arise based on and their potency, their own potency are the distinguishing characteristics that are used to, to classify mental factors as uh, primary or secondary or substantial or imputedly existent. And we see from this example where one author presents contradictory versions or alternate versions that it's uh, uh, very difficult to come up with like an, uh, uh, one conclusive way of presenting these. 
and there's a, a lot of disagreement over them, as we'll see in the next chapter with uh, that huge run through of all the alternate systems. So, so they're saying to me, it looks like it's the imputed are subsets of the substantial. Is that a way to look? No, they're. No. <laughs> what's the relationship? They're either identical or they're overlapping or a subset or they're exclusive. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, yeah. yeah, they're exclusive. They're two separate non intersecting groups, the substantial and imputedly existent. Did I answer the question? Was that what you were asking about? Those yeah, two groups? Because it yeah. looked like they were saying up in that third paragraph, convent. Oh, no, conventional. Okay, never mind. Okay, so then finally, the bottom of 178, second according to the text of the lower Abhidharma system, like uh, Fasubandhu's Treasury of Abhidharma, the explanation of which mental factors are substantially existent and which are imputed is as follows. The 46 mental factors in, from the Treasury of Knowledge which include the five determinate ones, one uh, category of indeterminate ones. That includes a subset of eight mental factors. This is complicated. <laughs> Plus the 24. Oh, I see. Uh, 46 mental factors enumerated in the treasury, the five categories of determinate ones, and one category of indeterminate ones. So what are the five categories of determinate ones? There's the the uh, omnipresent ones, the object-determining ones, the root clashes, the subsidiary clashes, and then there's the positive mental factors. Those are the five groups of determinate ones. And then there's the one category of indeterminate mental factors, which has sleep, uh, what was it uh sleepiness or something and then analysis and um uh, investigation those four indeterminate ones from among your the mental factors right so you know just like not not to get like totally confused by mental factors at this point the um it's it's helpful to remember the the gist of them as follows. There's the five ever-present ones that like happen with every mental state. And, you know, I realize that I've been presenting the object-determined factors as factors that arise in an object-determining consciousness. But I think that's the wrong way to understand them. I think the idea is that they are also ever-present, like the first five, but they function to determine the object more than the ever-present. I don't know if that's correct, because the ever-present also seem to be oriented toward an object. So, I don't know. But anyway, these are the main categories. Ever-present, <laughs> which are usually translated as omnipresent. Um, Object-determined, positive. And there's 11 of those. Primary factors are of upset. These are the six clashes, the six root, negative, and the... the 20 secondary negative factors. And then the variables 
or sleep, regret, that was it. Uh, conception, usually like analysis and investigation. Here we have conception and discernment. Interesting. So, you know, just remembering the main categories is helpful. But anyway, back to our text, those categories, all of those, although it's only one from the indeterminates for some reason, plus the 24 mental factors listed in the finer points of discipline, which, you know, I went back and found that, and it's just another list of mental factors. Um, they seem to really enjoy different lists, are substantially existent. And this is like the epitome of uh, Sarvastivada, is like everything exists. So basically, almost all the mental factors are substantially existent. In contrast, the seven, the root virtue, that is non-delusion, view that is a root affliction, as well as the five extensive afflictive mental factors listed in the seven Abhidharma treatises, such as blah, 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 uh, lack of meta-awareness and so forth, are explained as imputed. <laughs> and these, so there are some that are imputed, and uh, I guess they use the same logic for impute, imputation versus substantial is that they are uh, contextual. They arise in the presence of their root or substantially existent root. Non-delusion is imputed only on virtuous wisdom. View only on afflictive wisdom. View is bad, <laughs> by the way. Um, Lack of meta-awareness only on wisdom that is concomitant with afflictive minds and mental factors. So there's negative wisdom, which is interesting. Forgetfulness only on afflictive mindfulness. Distraction only on afflictive concentration. Inappropriate attention only on afflictive attention and wrong resolution only on afflictive resolution. When analyzed more precisely, however, it appears that the two Violence and nonviolence must be accepted as being imputed and that they are imputed on hatred and violence. Nonviolence on hatred, non-hatred and violence is imputed on hatred. So here, uh, non-hatred is explained as compassion, nonviolence is heartfelt love, and violence is wanting sentient beings to suffer. Um, The concluding sentences, when collated, it seems that out of the total of 27 mental factors, which in this system are the, um, what is it? I said seven, 27, it's 77, less the 24 is 53 mental factors from the treasury of knowledge, and then 24 from the points of finer discipline. Um, we need to posit 61 mental factors as substantially existent and 16 as imputed. And when you get to the higher Abhidharma, the ratio is much, is pretty much reversed. Not that this matters much to anybody, but I guess this, it, it comes, the, the only significance really, I think, comes down to under the, the definition of substantial and self-sufficient. That's helpful for understanding emptiness and the type of existence that we think exists. 
later when we come to the texts on that subject. And then the um, the notion of them being contextual that uh, and conditional relations that Cynthia mentioned is sort of like understanding when hatred arises, then it's prone to give rise to all these other things and vice versa. And so um, that's supposedly a, a way of managing emotions and minimizing uh, negative emotional uh, developments and maximizing positive emotional developments. Um, so when you have one root negative emotion arise, you try your darndest not to let it proliferate into a lot of other things. And when you have positive, virtuous mind, mental factors arise, you try to expand it into other types of mental factors. Alternate presentations on the next, in the next chapter, chapter 14, and that's on unnamed, uh, numerated page, but it's 181. So now we go through, uh, we'll go through very briefly, but the uh, authors go through in great detail various other presentations of the mental factors and many other texts. So first is the Sutra on the Application of Mindfulness. And this is not the, the Sutra on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Bizarrely, the Sutra on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which appears in the... Um, the uh, Majjhima Nikaya of the of the five kayas of the Pali Canon Sutta section and the Samyutta Nikaya. There's two versions of the Satipatthana Sutra. That didn't make it into Tibetan. It wasn't translated into Tibetan for some weird reason. The the amount of the Pali of the sutras in the Pali Canon that made it into the Tibetan canon known as the conjure is very small it's, it's bizarre uh, what made it in uh, the Vinaya texts made it in entirely um, and then uh, the Abhidharma texts made it in and then the Mahayana the canon preserved as the conjure in Tibetan adds a huge number of Mahayana sutras and many other things. Uh, it, it retains, there's in the Pali Canon, there's all these auxiliary texts that there are things like the Jatakas and little uh, sort of aphoristic sayings. Like if, if you're familiar with the Dhammapada, that's in you know, sort of the auxiliary collections. It's like a collection of sayings of the Buddha. It doesn't start with, thus have I heard, you know, the way the other sutras start. So it's in this sort of auxiliary section. So a bunch of those made it into Tibetan. Anyway, I digress. Uh, but uh, so this is a the sort of the Sanskrit Mahayana version of the Mindfulness Sutra. And uh, in that sutra, it has a, a litany of mental factors. And uh, let's see. I'm I'm gonna just start skipping around to things that I found of interest. Um, uh, in, in places where they provide definitions as opposed to just lists, I found a little more helpful and interesting. So like in the bottom of 182, 
actually on the top and the bottom of 182 you have uh, sorry actually on the bottom of the very first page you have descript, uh, definitions or explanations discernment is bringing about right understanding it's that which rightly knows the characteristic nature of the individual dharmas and that's a pretty helpful uh, definition actually because discernment is a major factor in uh, uh, vipassana meditation there's sort of two aspects of vipassana meditation discernment and investigation intention moves the mind toward any of the three aspects of virtuous non-virtuous and so forth on the next page contact has three kinds of experience it occurs with the three um, object sense faculty and sense consciousness when they meet and they're painful uh, sorry pleasant painful and neither attention is the placement of mind on the dharmas aspiration is contemplation of an object resolution is confidence or whatever gives rise to confidence uh, faith this faithfulness doesn't add a whole lot <laughs> diligence is primarily delight is <laughs> this uh, interesting way that diligence is viewed in the buddhist tradition as being delight delightful mindfulness is simply not forgetting uh what is it not forgetting uh the object <laughs> just kidding where the mind is not confused and concentration is primarily single-pointedness of mind wisdom is differentiating dharmas so let's see discernment um it brightly knows the characteristic nature of the dharmas and mind and wisdom is differentiating them interestingly enough oh let's see on the bottom of the page there's uh definitions of faithlessness is a lack of resolution laziness is laziness <laughs> um forgetfulness is not mindfulness these are less helpful so continuing to skip i'm on page 183 now uh, let's see how about the quote on the bottom of 183 from that sutra there are 10 main virtuous factors that arise universally they are non-attachment etc these virtues arise universally and their definitions are non-attachment uh, all sorry all of these arise from the basis of non-attachment which is their root as is non-hatred so uh attachment and non-hatred are the opposite of two of the three poisons and they're uh, therefore sort of a support for what we decided earlier when there was a reference to the three roots of virtue uh, here we have two of them shame is fear on account of oneself and embarrassment as uh, fear on account of others we saw that before faith is admiration with admiration admira admiration within a being's mental continuum pliancies a virtuous mind and a physical state that eliminates the development in bo of bodily mental dysfunction for it brings about bliss <laughs> we should be focusing on pliancy that's why everybody does yoga right because it brings about bliss uh, for some people <laughs> heedfulness accomplishes the virtuous dharmas equanimity 
is any meditative absorption focused on causes and conditions and what is to be done or not to be done. Interesting. Nonviolence is the non-harming of sentient beings. Um, skipping a paragraph, the following mental factors, although not included in the above categories, are mentioned and scattered throughout the sutra. So then they collect another huge amount of mental factors, what, 53, that are just mentioned here and there. And they do that because uh, basically that's where the early lists come from, is that the the Sangha, the Arhats or whatever, went through the various sutra teachings of the Buddha and identified what were the various mental factors that he mentioned and encouraged people to cultivate or to avoid in any circumstance, you know, just talking to so-and-so, he would say, do this or that, or not do this or that. And they collated all of those and then like came up with uh, what appeared to be like the most important, the most ones uh, that appeared the most and were emphasized the most by the Buddha and organized them into categories and so forth. Then there's the presentation in the Theravada text, the Compendium of Abhidharma. And this is one of the most uh, popular these days Abhidharma texts in the Theravada world. So there's, it's by a gentleman named Anuruddha, who I think lived in like the 10th, 11th, uh, sorry, 12th or 13th century, I think. And um, it's a little bit of uh, uh, arcane, but it's not too arcane as the earlier ones maybe it's uh, abhidharma text and uh, it's been translated a couple of times um, actually i think uh, maybe three times twice though by bhikkhu bodhi he put out two versions and the second and most recent version is a very nice publication called compendium of abhidharma that has a commentary on it by him in it, along with somebody, I think somebody else, some Tara that he studied with. Tara is sort of like Kenpo or something in Tibetan tradition. So that has uh, some helpful commentary in it as well. If you're interested, like in seeing, well, what does an original Abhidharma text look like? And he teaches classes on it periodically or whatever. Um, let's see. They have 52 mental factors, and skipping the quote, a mental factor is an awareness that is concomitant with the main mind in terms of being the same in four aspects, arising, ceasing, so the time, the, the uh, object, they have the same object, they have the same time, the same object, and the same base, meaning dominant condition, meaning sense faculty. And there's these Categories, common, non-virtuous, virtuous, thus there's 52. So, um, I didn't, let's see, is there anything else that's worth going through here? There's a little bit of an extensive description of uh, uh, bodily and mental lightness on uh towards the bottom of 186, where it says here, balance means equanimity as their further definitions. Bodily lightness and mental lightness are mental factors that respective, respectively 
have the nature of pacifying bodily and mental heaviness and thereby bodily and, and mental serviceability. Bodily softness and mental softness <laughs> are uh, mental factors that respectively have the nature of pacifying mental bodily and mental hardness and inflexibility. Who would have thought that softness was a positive mental factor, huh? <laughs> Physical and mental softness. Ah, you're soft. The pair of mental factors that make the body and mind proficient are mental factors that respectively have the nature of pacifying bodily mental sickness and dysfunction and the pair of mental factors that make the body and mind straight are mental factors that respectfully respectively rather pacify bodily and mental crookedness, pretense, guile, and so on. And altogether I guess that equals balance, which means equanimity. Uh, skipping ahead. Let's see. The uh, 187, the first paragraph uh, regarding the third set, the two but immeasurable. Could you just sorry. name the, what header you're under when you're along uh, pages, please? Sure. I'm still within the presentation in the Theravada Compendium of Abhidharma, and I'm towards the end of that. Uh, and uh, the next text referenced is Nagarjuna's Precious Garland. So I'm two paragraphs from the end of this one. Mm -hmm. So the third set has two immeasurables and the fourth the faculty of wisdom. So it goes through compassionate joy are immeasurable. Um, but skipping to wisdom at the bottom of that paragraph is defined as a mental factor that understands the way things exist in terms of their ultimate reality and their manifold reality. And this becomes the standard uh, definition of omniscience or wisdom of a Buddha in the Mahayana tradition. It functions to distinguish individually appearing objects. And again, uh, we've seen this before, this idea of individually discriminating wisdom. Uh, we've seen this odd phrase, hopefully it rings a bell for people, this wisdom that discriminates individually or separately, uh, the dharmas individually and it always sort of has this odd uh, wording it just sort of seems odd but uh, here we have some helpful terminology it functions to distinguish individually appearing objects so it distinguish objects from each other and objects are distinguished based on what like color and shape which are their characteristics. Yes. Otherwise known as in this context, their function, their function, which is a support for their being the basis of designation <laughs> of an imputation. Right. So we identify objects based on their basis of identity uh, of uh, identification. I, I just have a basis question. Basis of imputation, sorry. And then we distinguish them based on their basis of imputation. Cynthia. So here they're saying the faculty of wisdom, blah, 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 functions to distinguish individually appearing objects. But in the, in the schema of the skandhas, aren't we already, dis, aren't we distinguishing 
individually appearing objects at a level that's much lower than what we normally call wisdom. Through the faculty of what? Um, perception. Yeah, the third skanda. Indeed, indeed. And and so, what's the distinction? The only the only way I can under this understand the distinction is that it's coupled with the description in the first sentence of. Um, it the understands. It understands. Well, both. It understands the way things exist in both of their ways that things exist in their ultimate nature and their relative nature. So it has that understanding as the foundation and the key, I think the key distinguishing mark, and then based on that understanding, it individually uh, realizes or discriminates. And it, which it, is, it's yeah. odd because things don't exist as separate things, but it, it identifies them and distinguishes them individually, even though those individual distinctions are not, are not substantially existent. <laughs> but I think the idea is that it understands how we impute existence. Sorry. Cynthia. Yeah, no, I was just saying, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I just feel like the way they say it is not so as good as that, because it seems like the last sentence really is not uniquely the function of wisdom. It's the it's the first sentence that's the unique function of wisdom. And the second, the, the, that other one is sort of, uh, it seems misleading in a way, because like I said, that's already happening on some other level without the wisdom in ordinary. I, I, I agree with you first. And then secondly, I think the way they would defend their saying that is that they would say, we're not saying it's uh, unique in doing that. There are other other mental factors that perform that function. Uh, but it, it, it's, uh, it, it does that also. That's the only way I can understand Mm-hmm. Okay, because it seems like I, I felt like they were trying to describe it as it's sort of uniquely. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think the first sentence is the unique part, and then the second one is what does it do? Yeah. Okay. I don't know, but it, it, it's definitely something that we should be on the lookout for, is, in basically this cryptic phrase of individually distinguishing dharmas which will, uh, you know, I'm trying to right. alert you to it. You'll we'll see it come up in many places. Well, yeah, you would think that they would be able to say, I mean, this is always that problem of precision of language that, you know, there's a way you could say that, you know, distinguishes what we perceive as blah, 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 as opposed to what really are objects, right? It's true. It's an odd. Well, that that's is what makes it very odd. Like when they describe Kongshul describes Vipassana, he says we we uh, individually analyze the uh, phenomena that arise during shamatha uh, that are unanalyzed. <laughs> you know these odd phrases. So I agree with all of the above. And, uh, you know, I think as as in many cases with the Dharma, just like seeing the way it's contextualized in in, in more and more cases helps sort of expand the, the understanding of how, or the understanding of how they understood it or were using it. Uh, but you never, you know, sometimes the translation makes it hard to do that, of course. But. 
Anyway, then we have um, the presentation in Nagarjuna's famous text, the Ratnavali or Precious Garland, and he lists fifty. He lists a lot of mental factors, even though he didn't believe that anything existed on its own. <laughs> he, he, uh, that's a, a really cool text. It's the whole path text. He does everything in there. I mean, look at all these guys. Uh, but again, uh, here the interesting thing is that they give these nice, handy little uh, definitions, starting on the bottom of page one hundred eighty-seven, haughtiness which is not honoring one's teacher, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Offensive inst instigation, which is engaging in verbal and physical actions, such as scowling, and so on. Pride is of seven types, here counted as one. Hypocrisy is restraining the doors of the sense faculties out of a desire for honor and gain. How's that one for this definition of hypocrisy? Flattery, speaking pleasant words out of desire for honor and gain. Hinting, which is praising something belonging to someone else in order to acquire it. <laughs> what a beautiful, what a, that looks really good, that drink of yours. <laughs> uh, let's see, soliciting for the sake of gain, openly deriding others as being avaricious. <laughs> Pursuing game with gain, which is extolling something one, has previous, one previously acquired. Carping. Did anybody look up carping? <laughs> I did. Anybody know what carping is? Neil, you're, you're part British or something, aren't you? Just to complain. Yeah, to complain. Another word for whinging. <laughs> carping. What a funny word which is stating again and again the faults of others. The, uh, the definition I got when I looked it up was uh, complaining, um, I think it said complaining a lot or over and over again about trivial things. Uh, let's see. Discomposure, mental irritation toward others. Dis Discomposure, heavy laziness, attachment toward low, lowly things, discrimination between self and others, this dif differentiating between, between oneself and others in a biased manner when obstructed by hatred and attachment. There you go. That's a good definition of discrimination as we know it today. Not watching one's mind, which is not analyzing whether this or that mind is virtuous or not virtuous. Weakened esteemed for what is to be done in accordance with the Dharma, which occurs owing to laziness. Being a vile person, <laughs> which is to take another person as a spiritual guide without treating them in the manner of a Buddha. <laughs> That's a rather narrow definition of being that is, that's very That's very pointed, isn't it? <laughs> There's an agenda there, I think. Adherence, which arises from attachment and is a minor entanglement. Thorough adherence, which arises from desire for the five objects of the senses and is a major entanglement. Attachment towards one's belonging, an appropriate attachment towards others belonging, and a proper attachment, which is wanting to praise a woman or a man who is an improper object of desire out of desire for him or her. Hypocrisy, which I thought we had... Didn't we have hypocrisy above in number 16? Now we have another hypocrisy, which is giving an impression of how many qualities that one does not have. 
Hmm, that's interesting. Two different versions of hypocrisy. Uh, great desire and extreme greed for things that extends far beyond contentment. Desire for attainment, wanting others to believe one possesses great qualities no matter what. Intolerance, unable to bear suffering when it arises within oneself or when one is harmed by others. Impropriety, lack of respect for the activities of preceptors and gurus. Not appreciating instruction, which is to think it's it is all right for me to sleep late and not go to the morning session. Uh, no. <laughs> for me to engage in virtual advice and so on when one has been given beneficial advice. Thinking about one's relatives, attachment to family members. Nobody here does that, right? <laughs> Families are definitely terrible things. Craving an object to extol even a lowly object's good qualities for the purpose of obtaining it. Thinking one is deathless. That was a good one. Uh, untroubled by a fear of death. In other words, we should constantly have a fear of death and be troubled by the fact that we're going to die. Thinking with concern for recognition, determining how to behave so others will see oneself as having excellent qualities and gain their respect. Thinking with attachment, lusting after others, it, uh, ascertaining ill will. Consider whether someone intends to benefit or harm oneself. Mental instability is a mind of dislike. Mental perturbation owing to desire, apathy, slothfulness of the body with no energy for virtue or alteration of color and body owing to the force of the mental afflictions. Wow, that's like flushing or something, right? Blushing, flushing and blushing. Not wanting food. <laughs> this is a funny one. Not wanting food. I don't have that problem. <laughs> which uh, is explained as physical discomfort from overeating. I don't know, maybe I do have that problem. <laughs> Deep despondency of mind, which is explained as discouragement of the mind, sense desire, wanting and seeking desirable objects, and so forth. Uh, then we have the Compendium of Teachings, which is another book by Nagarjuna, uh, Sutra Samuchaya, another list. To skip that one, then we have Chandrakirti's versions in his text on the classification of the five skandhas. And uh, on page 191, we have some definitions that are of interest. Disenchantment is a mental factor identified, the second paragraph, as being fed up with samsara once one has seen its faults. It functions to cause one to abandon mental afflictions. The next paragraph, complete joy, according to the Vaibhashikas, is a mental factor having the aspect of bliss that is a mental feeling, which is considered to be a different substance from the bliss of pliancy that is a mental factor. That is the most interesting distinction, is that there's two types of bliss. There's pliancy bliss and there's this other complete joy bliss. The text says the complete joy of the mind is a gladness in the mind that is different from mental bliss. It is complete joy. According to the higher Abhidharma system, however, bliss is a mental factor that is an experience of pleasure accompanying a primary mental consciousness, thereby enhancing the sense faculty that is its basis. And joy is pleasure accompanying a mental consciousness. So bliss and joy 
are said to be the same in the higher Abhidharma. Go figure. Do we know, do you know what the um, Tibetan words are or some words that they're referring to with these? Well, well, one of them is Xinjiang. The pliancy is Xinjiang. The pliancy version is Xinjiang. Complete joy, I don't know. Uh, uh, so you're saying the bliss of pliancy is essentially the word Xinjiang? Yes. Okay. That's the word of but Xinjiang. The, That's but right. the complete joy one, you're not sure what they're talking well, about? Well, ga is yeah. the word ga is joy. So whether right. it's shin ga or, you know, it's not always the same word for complete when you add it to. My my refuge name is kunga, which is respect. all joyful. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just I'm just curious. Oh, oh. It's probably that. Yeah, all joyful. So that's the bliss. If you're a Theravadan, then it's different than pliancy, and if you're a Mahayana, then it's the same. Got it. <laughs> I guess that's what they're saying. Non-pliancy is laxity and dullness. The object is unclear. So, non, you know, pliancy is sort of a bliss, a positive feeling of mind and body. And then they say, um, and it doesn't have anything to do, well, it says, thereby enhancing the sense faculty. But then we have non-pliancy, which is included in all types of laxity and dullness, where the object is unclear. And they're clearly talking about cognition, or maybe even meditation, and that's in this sense. It hinders the ability to employ as one wishes any type of virtuous mind. It's a heaviness of body mind. It's interesting they say the object is unclear because if you experience it, it's more like the subject is unclear. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is the way it's described in the presentation of the antidotes to, to the obstacles and in shamatha, where it's object-oriented. So it's that one like reverted to the shamatha description. And then finally, liberation is a mental factor that abandons the mental afflictions. <laughs> I've never seen liberation referred to as a mental factor, but... On the next page, roots of virtue are mental factors that are virtuous by nature without depending on motivation or something else. And they function as the basis of all virtues. The three roots, the three, there are three. Root of virtue that is non-attachment, non-hatred, and non-delusion. So that's the opposite of the three roots as we conjectured earlier. Uh, the roots of non-virtue are the opposite. The roots of neutral karma fetters um that when present in the mind stream yoke it to the arising of craving for an object or yoke it to many instances of suffering there's nine fetters they list the nine fetters and they give an alternate listing from that text then we have bindings and uh, there are three bindings attachment hatred and delusion and then we have proclivities uh, that are the roots of both projecting and actualizing causes of rebirth and samsara, and their nature is hard to re their nature is hard to realize, and they proliferate owing to their object and their concomitant factors, and they're classified in two ways. Um, they don't say what the two ways are. I guess projecting and actualizing causes a rebirth are the two ways. 
there's six types of proclivities. And then we have second, skipping the quote, we have secondary mental inflictions. And we'll skip that. So I, I had trouble linking these to the aggregates. Are these all mental formations? Or are they perceptions in mental formations? Yeah, they're all mental factors. So they're in okay, the fourth so skanda. Yeah, yeah. We're still in that, in that world. That. That part. Uh, that part of the chart of reality of yeah of mind. On one ninety four, we have entanglements. Uh, let's see that uh, mental factors that remain entwined in the minds of ordinary beings at all times. They uh, obstruct engaging in virtue, and they are the ten entanglements, uh, all of which I know very well. And then in the next page, we have contaminants, or afflictive mental factors that overflow from the wounds of the six sources of samsara. The six sources of samsara, I wonder if that's the six realms. Floods are afflictive mental factors that carry one away to other realms. Migrations in places of birth in the ocean of samsara. And there are four, the flood of desire, the flood of samsaric existence, the flood of views, and the flood of ignorance. And the four floods become the object of a very famous text by uh, a Sakya master. Uh, Koncho Jeltsin or something like that. Some There's a famous Sakya text that's called uh, Severing the Four Attachments. And then uh, Dojibchen Rimshe, the third Dojibchen, has a commentary on that root text. By uh, the Sakya guys, one of the five masters, early masters of the Sakya tradition. Can't quite remember his name, but anyway, it was interesting to see that here. It's sort of like the four Maras, right? Desire. A flood of samsara, flood of views, and flood of ignorance. Anyway, bonds uh, cause the consciousness of ordinary beings to reincarnate in samsara. Derek, yes. when they say view here, do they mean like view in the sense of like an opinion? Totally, yeah, like an idea. Uh, you know, but I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit more than an opinion um, in the sense that they're saying any views are not based on valid cognition, inferential or uh, direct valid cognition. Views are conjectures, opinions, uh, beliefs, ideas, uh, superstitions. Um, Habit habits, um, assumptions, all of those things are views. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, there's the bond of desire, some sorry existence, views, which we just talked about, and ignorance, graspings, mental factors that cause the consciousness of ordinary beings to grasp onto samsara, and therefore grasping at the objects of desire, grasping at views, grasping at ethics and vows, like being obsessed with uh, your vows or 
um, the way some system of beliefs, of ethics or whatever, and a grasping at a doctrine of the self. Ties or afflictive mental factors that obstruct the development of an unfluctuating mental body. There's the four of them, the tie of covetousness, tie of ill will, holding ethics and vows to be supreme, and uh, holding bad views. <laughs> bad, bad views. That's like the, in the chant we have bad deeds or something that we say evil deeds. Here we have bad views to be supreme. A little question. Are, are these things meant to be, there seems like there's some overlap. They're not like, they're not all each mutually exclusive. Yeah, there's, right? yeah, that's a good point. You know, in the other systems of mental factors, it does seem like they're trying to be mutually exist, uh, exclusive and like identify unique mental factors. And here it's just like this litany of, of lists which overlap uh, many, many times. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I don't know why they're doing it that way. It's an interesting question. Hindrances are non-virtuous mental factors of desire that obstruct meditative absorption, liberation, concentration, and equipose. So um, sometimes we see the two hindrances to enlightenment, which are the emotional, and cognitive uh, hindrances or obstructions to enlightenment. Sometimes we see a third one, which is hindrances to samadhi or concentration. I've never seen a fourth one other than this, distinguished uh, where they pull out equipoise as having its own hindrances. And it's, it's the usual uh, five, sensory desire, ill will, dullness slash sleepiness, excitation. Uh, interesting that excitation and regret are grouped together. I have a feeling their understanding of regret here is uh, not quite what we would think of as regret, but excitation and, um, you know, sort of obsessive compulsive thinking about things and doubt. Anyway, knowledge on the bottom is either contaminated knowledge or knowledge having the nature of definitely abandoning the doubt that is its object to be abandoned. There are 10 types of knowledge, and this is the traditional 10 knowledges of a Buddha. Knowledge of other, let's see, knowledge of Dharma, knowledge, uh, subsequent knowledge, subsequent knowledge. That's such a funny term. <laughs> If you don't know what it refers to, it, it like has zero meaning, but it refers to the knowledge that arises subsequent to the attainment of uh, equipoise, poise, or uh, samadhi. And uh, the implication is that within true samadhi, there's a vision or an understanding of the true nature of reality the ultimate nature of reality. And then subsequently, one arises from that and one then... Uh, practices um, blending that understanding with the fact that one still one is experiencing appearances because in equipoise there's no appearances and so it's it's uh, just all empty whereas when you then come out of samadhi you experience a body and objects and so forth and it's the habitual patterns of believing in dualistic experience re-arise.
So it's, isn't this like the post-first boomy? Like, it is, definitely. Path, this is essentially that's, the path of the Bodhisattva, right? That's where it's specifically used. That's right. It's like after the first uh, path, the path of seeing, where basically one attains liberation from samsara by understanding selflessness and uh, uh, emptiness to some extent. One then arises and spends the remaining two uh, countless kalpas going through the, the remainder of the ten bhumis to wear out that habit pattern of uh, beginningless births, beginningless samsara accumulated. The habit pattern is accumulating since beginningless uh, beginning uh, in the form of viewing things as uh, being the way they appear. Let's see. Knowledge of other minds, knowledge of conventionality, knowing how appearances, what appearances are, how they appear. Knowledge of suffering, knowledge of its origin, the Four Noble Truths, cessation path, knowledge of extinction, neurota, and knowledge of non-arising, having uprooted all of the hindrances, then there's non-arising of anything from there. Acquiescence in the next paragraph. And so, as Cynthia pointed out, this is uh, this wisdom. Uh, one of the aspects of this wisdom, and all of the aspects of, uh, sorry, many of the items on this list of wisdom are what are experienced on the path of seeing. Uh, not only the subsequent knowledge, but knowledge of the four truths is what one experiences on the path of seeing. There's this idea that the path of seeing has 16 moments. Perhaps that will sound familiar, the 16 moments of the path of seeing, which are experiencing or understanding or processing the four aspects of each of the Four Noble Truths. So each of the Four Noble Truths has four aspects, and one goes through this process of eight knowledges, where one understands suffering, root of suffering, cessation, and path. And then what is usually translated as patient acceptances, where one then um, sort of settles into the truth or the reality of those four noble truths and their four aspects. And uh, so there's a series of eight of each of knowledges and acquiescences or patient um, acceptances that together make up the 16 moments of the path of knowledge. So here we have acquiescence is an uncontaminated mental factor that acts as the direct antidote to its specific object. <laughs> when categorized, there are eight acquiescence in the knowledge of the teaching on suffering, the first truth, uh, acquiescence in the subsequent knowledge of suffering, acquiescence in the knowledge of origin and the subsequent knowledge. Wow, okay, so there's eight of these for each one. There's a knowledge and a subsequent, sorry, subsequent knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. And that brings that text to a close, but that was interesting presentation. What text was this? Oh, the Five Aggregates by Chandra Kirti. Cool. 
And then there's an estimate of mental factors collated from various enumerations. So the authors do that job of like collating all the distant lists, sorry, that I was joking about at the beginning of class. They collate them all and they come up with uh, huge numbers of lists, huge numbers of mental factors, some of which are repetitive and some of which are not repeating. And at the bottom of the main paragraph on 197, it says, thus, when we add up the various unique mental factors found in the text identified in this compendium of Buddhist sciences, which is the book you're holding or looking at, we see that altogether the total number of mental factors comes to 119, which is really bothersome that after all that, they couldn't like round it off to a 120 you couldn't just like add one more but it does also i, I like the line here where it said the question concerning the total number still requires further research right <laughs> yeah that's good that's good yet they came up with a number <laughs> yeah um wherever there's some factors enumerated in chandra that's at the bottom of the page going over into 198 enumerated in chandra kirti's text um, such as liberation, knowledge, and acquiescence that are just different names for mental factors already listed in the other texts. Um, so since, in terms of their definitions, they're included in feeling, discernment, wisdom, aspiration, resolution, and so on. Interesting. We have not counted them as separate in the above list of aggregated total, and so on. Okay, this is the ultimate lists of lists uh, chapter of all times. Why, the last paragraph, why do Buddhist texts present taxonomies and mental factors? Well, detailed analyses of individual mental factors in terms of their definitions, functions, and internal causal relationships. In general, our external behavior, body speech, flows primarily from the motivating forces operating within our minds. And our minds in their turn follow principally from the activity of their concomitant mental factors that therefore becomes extremely important for those of us who wish to transform our minds to have some understanding even in terms of a rough outline of the definitions of the most significant mental factors and their functions. It is with this recognition that extensive explanations of the mental factors are presented in the Buddhist text. And that's the blurb for this part of the the course that is the explanation oh, for why are you torturing me with all of yes. this information? <laughs> so, so they're so they're saying uh, you only have to know 119 you don't have to know the 525. <laughs> we get off easy huh okay something different a tantric perspective it's always exciting when we get to look at Tantra and the Vimeshedra notion. The notion that consciousness occurs at various degrees of subtlety is found in many Indian traditions and Buddhism is no exception. According to Buddhist theory, subtle states can occur both naturally and as a result of contemplative practice. And while they can be harnessed to various purposes, they especially offer the opportunity to explore the nature of consciousness in forms that are not cluttered by the hubbub 
<laughs> technical term, or even the chaos of a, of a mind in the usual gross consciousness of everyday life, where authors begin with the well-known topology of consciousness in three contexts, awake, dreaming, and dreamless sleep, but dreamless sleep being the subtlest. They further note that during the waking state, mental uh, consciousness is subtler than sense consciousness. Thinking of an apple is subtler than seeing one. Interesting. Uh, revealing how they're thinking of subtle. It's not uh, seeing an apple is more sort of non, uh, it's obviously more non-conceptual and it's more direct and uh, complete. But that is not what they mean by subtle here, clearly, right? Um, these notions of the subtlety of consciousness uh, are formulated from the theoretical standpoint assumed by most of this volume, but our authors begin to leave that standpoint behind when they move on to a discussion of the subtle levels of consciousness that transpire in the death process. This in turn quickly leads to this part's main theme, the levels of consciousness as depicted in the Buddhist tantric texts. To introduce this account of gross and subtle minds, I will thus focus on the tantric perspective which shifts our exploration of the mind into a context quite unlike the other parts of this compendium. Although the precise history of tantric practice in India is obscure, by the time Buddhism began to be established in Tibet in the 8th century, dominant style of Buddhist practice in India was tantric. The term refers to a genre of Buddhist literature said to be transmitted in secret to a select audience. These texts stand in distinction from the sutras, discourses taught to a wide audience by the Buddha, Shakyamuni, the historical guy, the Buddha. Traditional accounts maintain that the tantras were also taught by the historical Buddha, although not in his ordinary form. Whatever one might say about the difficult question of authorship from the time Buddhism first reached Tibet until the end of the 13th century, when the historically attested interchange between Tibetan and Indian Buddhism dwindled to the point of disappearance, tantric practice was indisputably at the center of all the Tibetan traditions, where the texts and practices fall under the rubric of Vajrayana. And uh, what was this? So not in his ordinary form. He shifts into a nearby phone booth, booth and <laughs> comes out as Vajradhara or some other Samantabhaja. Uh, the Vajrayana includes a strikingly wide array of texts and methods, but most are not relevant to our understanding of gross and subtle minds. Instead, only two aspects require attention. First, in relation to the subtlest level of consciousness, uh, we have a non-dual interpretation of the relationship between mind and body, such that the substance dualism assumed in other sections of this compendium does not apply. So mind-matter are the main dualism that underlies all other types of Buddhism except the Chittamatra and the Vajrayana. Second Vajrayana offers a set of techniques, perhaps a technology, that manipulates the mind-body system in ways that are said to be especially effective in producing the transformations that are central to uh, the Buddhist practice. A brief look at this non-dual account and methods or technology that flow from it will help to clarify what do we mean by gross and subtle minds. 
wind and mind, a non-dual perspective. In other parts of the volume, general level of analysis adopted is called substance dualism. From this perspective, the mental and physical are distinct because they're made of different substances, namely material stuff and mental stuff. Even this dualist account does not assume that mind can simply exist in complete independence of some type of embodiment sort of poking a hole in the in the uh, um, exclusive relationship between mind and body in the early tradition. Uh, instead, the mind stands in an interdependent relationship with its basis, the physical body, which acts as a container or substratum within and through which mind functions in the performance, but it's Tantra most relevant here. This relationship between mind and basis moves beyond substance dualism by articulating a fundamental energy called wind in Tibetan lung, which is different, uh, which is the word in lungta and vayu in Sanskrit. In the first volume, wind figures prominently as one of the four elements that construe, constitute the physical world. Wind accounts for the basic lightness, mobility, and motility of reality. Tantric, as tantric traditions emerge, however, wind takes on meanings that connecting to developments in Indian medical theories attributed to a central role in the embodied mind where this fundamental energy facilitates mental, many capacities, including physical movement, cognitive processes, and consciousness itself. It's interesting that uh, consciousness rides the mount of wind in terms of its closest elemental relationship. Sort of makes sense. Much more much more obvious than a relationship based on earth or, or water or fire. Um, chapter 30 of the first volume discusses the most typical Tibetan account of the Vajrayana that presents wind as playing a key role in the functioning of the embodied mind. So if you remember in the last course, we went through the 10 winds, the 10 values. Uh, uh, when they went through the subtle body, we went through the channels and the drops and the winds that move the drops along the, or the energies along the channels and the chakras and so forth. This Vajrayana model involves an elaborate model of a subtle body featuring 72,000 channels branching from three main ones in which 10 types of wind energy flow and where drops or vital essences occur at key locations. In our detailed account, subtle physiology need not be reiterated here except for one important point. It's a subtlest state known as the extremely subtle mind. Consciousness is indistinguishable from its basis. The in, uh, sorry, and the extremely subtle wind. So in its in its most essential form, um, consciousness is subtle wind. In other words, uh, to adopt a typical metaphor, the subtlest level of consciousness is nothing other than the extremely subtle energy on which it is mounted. And that extremely subtle energy is nothing other than the extremely subtle consciousness that is, is its rider. So the, the non-duality of the basis and the support, in this case, the wind and the consciousness. Thus, while the mind-body distinction can be maintained at a coarse level, that distinction falls away at the subtlest level from the perspective of Vajrayana theory. So we have the, 
the uh, place where mind and matter meet is in that subtle, subtlest uh, aspect of consciousness that is wind. And that's where the magic of Vajrayana happens in terms of like transforming our actual reality by uh, accessing the fact that the subtlest aspect of our mind is the essence of our physical manifestation. And that's how we can transform our physical manifestation into the embodiment of a Buddha in various forms, such as uh, usually known as yidams. Thus, while the mind-body distinction, uh, let's see, in, in uh, their discussion of this issue previously, the authors said that at the subtlest level, given that when the consciousness exists as a single entity, no differentiation can be made between the two in terms of their reality. Clearly, we would arrive at a non-dual account of the relationship between mind and body that presumes that only body, that the only body left is an extremely subtle form of energy. So the body sort of dissolves into the essence of the mind. As it turns out, that particular mind-body configuration occurs reliably only at death. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> That's unfortunate. And that is precisely the main target of what we might call the technology of Tantra, which is to recreate that experience while we're alive and not dying. And that's the goal of Tantric Vajrayana, what we would call Tantric Vajrayana practice. Cynthia? I just wondered, uh, in this context, are they using mind and consciousness interchangeably? They are. Thank you. Yes, they are. Because I was yeah. thinking, as we, I mean, as we get into the whole time of death thing, there's a point where those, in some views anyway, are Different. not interchangeable, right? Yeah. That's right, but here, here interchangeable. So let, trying to, let's see if we can go a few minutes late, if that's okay, and finish this section. Most of our authors on page 204, discussion of gross and subtle minds focuses on the tantric model formulated from their perspective of what the tradition calls highest yoga tantra in, in uh, Sanskrit, Anutara. In Tibetan, Lana Mepa Neljorgyu, Neljorgyu. For this account, the main purpose of tantric practice is one we've just, just discussed before, the complete eradication of the fundamental ignorance that, by virtue of distorting our awareness of reality, causes suffering and prevents us from achieving full awakening of a Buddha, which is the uh, purpose of all Buddhist practice. Recall also that removing fundamental cognitive distortion involves cultivating the wisdom that uproots ignorance, precisely because ignorance is that which... Uh, because, sorry, because it directly cognizes the nature of reality without any such distortion. Wisdom does. While the various Tibetan traditions differ somewhat on the details, the Vajrayana Tantric insight is that our gross level of experience contains so many distortions that systematically undoing them can take an extremely long time on the order of three incalculable aeons, according to the traditional estimate of the Mahayana Yet if we somehow experience wisdom at a subtler level of experience that acts as a foundation for the gross level of experience, that subtle level of wisdom can uproot all the gross confusions served by that level of consciousness. According to the Vajrayana theory, that kind of experience which requires diving down to the subtlest level of consciousness enables us to achieve full awakening in a single body, single lifetime. So that was the most profound part of the whole thing, revealing 
the strategy of Vajrayana, which is not to sort of overcome all the ignorance and defilements by meeting them one by one and by cultivating their antidotes of wisdom, but by connecting down to the to the subtlest level of consciousness that we have, which is called the Anyone? Subtlest level of our consciousness is the Alia. The Alia. Thank you very much, sir. Christopher. The Alia Vijnana. So by diving down into the Alia Vijnana, how do we dive down into the Alia Vijnana? Scuba, well, wouldn't scuba you have gear. to die to yourself first before you can do any of this? <laughs> Well, in, in essence, I don't know where that comes in. It should come in somewhere. <laughs> that's after you get to the Ali Vijnana, then you die in, in, uh, in a sense. And you pierce through the Ali Vijnana, but you, you dive down the ocean of uh, our mind, our uh, conventional conflicted mind, into the Ali through Shamata practice. Uh, that subtlest level of consciousness occurs reliably at the moment of death. So tantric technology involves reproducing the experience of death without actually dying. From the Vajrayana perspective, the various winds in the body must be manipulated to achieve this feat. But to achieve that level of control, practitioners must first move beyond their ordinary perceptions and conceptions and experience the sacred world. This is necessary because the process of perceiving and thinking are constituted by the fluctuations of these winds in various channels. So mind is consciousness, so the fluctuations of the winds in the channels equals the distortions of our cognitive, ex ignorant cognitive experience in the form of perceiving and thinking. And those fluctuations follow the deeply habituated patterns that manifest as our ordinary identity. Since, before attempting to manipulate the winds, practitioners must first disrupt those deeply ingrained patterns. And to do so, they engage in the generation stage of visualizing themselves in a different pattern instead of, instead of continuing to think that we appear the way we look or that we are the way we appear. By transforming their sense of identity through elaborate visualizations, recitations, and rituals, tantric practitioners transform their identities in ways that make the energy winds available for manipulation. So the visualization process is basically like an exercising of the winds. It's, it's uh, as a way of getting good at moving the winds around. And when you move the winds around, you perceive things differently. And, and so you have to get good at moving the winds so that you can then manipulate the winds into the central channel. Uh, let's see. When they reach that point, practitioners are ready for the next phase of practice, the completion stage. When tantric practitioners engage in the completion stage, they employ techniques to actually manipulate the winds with the eventual goal of inducing a dissolution sequence said to closely resemble the process of dying. In actual death, the physical processes associated with the gross elements dissolve or cease to operate, and although the physical body is still present, its coarse functions such as digestion have ceased as this process continues, only the energy winds remain functional. 
And as these also dissipate, conceptual and affective processes also shut down. The final stages of death involve just three progressively subtler forms of wind that are inseparable from three progressively subtler levels of consciousness. If awareness can be sustained through this process, and I think those three levels are referring to the 80 conceptions, which I think Cynthia asked about at one point. Um, if awareness can be sustained through this process, various phenomenological appearances are said to occur. And those have known, those are described in the death process. If you read the tantric version of the death process, there's appearance, increase, and full attainment. You, would, you will see those, and they have different colors. Appearance is a dull white, like the light of a moon, of a full moon. And then increase is reddish quality, and then full attainment is black. And that's what occurs as one passes out into death before one sees the bright white light of a dharmakaya. But having passed out through, if we're not conscious in, in full attainment, then we miss the bright white light. We don't get our money's worth. <laughs> uh, let's see. If awareness, so the final stage of death involves these three progressive things. If awareness can be sustained through this process, various phenomenological appearances said to occur in the final step. In the final step, all that remains is an extremely subtle form of wind mind called the clear light. Clear light mind. Prabhasvara. Remember that term, luminosity. Trump Rimshe introduces that in cutting through spiritual materialism. In actual death, it is said that all of the winds dissipate in the clear light wind mind, you know, wind slash mind, that marks the end of the process must also decay. By that point, the process is long since irreversible and death is inevitable in Vajrayana practice. Practitioners use techniques that induce assimilation of this process without actually allowing it to end in death. <laughs> got to be very careful that you stop at the right time. you got to set your timer on your watch or your phone. Um, in so doing, practitioners learn to access what is said to be the subtlest level of conscious awareness ordinary persons if they somehow could sustain awareness into the clear light would still experience that state with the distortions that come from ignorance. But tantric practitioners are said to have the training to see that clear light within mind in its true nature. By having done creation and completion stage practice, thus counteracting ignorance at the very subtlest level of consciousness. In a sense, the clear light wind mind is the foundation for all other levels of consciousness. So counteracting ignorance at that level has a tremendous impact, potentially leading directly to Buddhahood. The clear light state induced through tantric practice is said to be both extremely subtle and also extremely intense or even blissful. And these, these account for its tremendous potential for transformation. We've often seen description of Vajrayana practice as uh, uh, done upon the basis of experiencing bliss and the idea is that the bliss creates an intensity that intoxicates conceptual mind and allows one to uh, consciously experience the most subtle levels of consciousness wind. Nevertheless, the practice induced clear light state is said to be metaphorical in relation to the actual clear light wind mind that occurs in true death. And we've seen 
they're using this term metaphorical. We've seen that described as example wisdom or the child wisdom and the true clear light is the uh, actual versus the example and the mother clear light as opposed to the child clear light in relation to the actual clear light wind mind that occurs death true death for vajrayana practitioners harnessing extremely subtle extreme subtlety and power of the metaphorical clear light mind the example clear light mind to the task of uprooting ignorance is certainly part of the goal while they are alive but inducing that state has another purpose it prepares practitioners for death and the opportunity to bring their contemplative practice into the actual clear light mind itself so you just received vajrayana transmission <laughs> because this is the most subtle and uh, clear and explicit explanation of what vajrayana is the strategy of vajrayana that one it's among the most clear and explicit explanations that one can find and they give some sources that present similarly explicit and clear and uh particularly in this book the second source highest yoga yoga tantra by daniel kosort um it's also a lot shorter than the third one, which is very long. Uh, they're all amazing. Um, but uh, it, it prepares an opportunity for, let's see. There was something I was going to say. Well, anyway, that's the methodology of Tantra, interestingly. So, we should conclude with the dedication of merit upon that basis. What was I going to say? Oh, oh, I was going to say this, that uh, interestingly, in this Galukpa tradition, which is represented here, you could, you could see there's a subtle implication that the only true clear light mind happens at death, right? Did, did, did you pick up on that? There's a sort of subtle slant, right? So basically, in the Galukpa tradition, one can only achieve complete, full enlightenment either at the time of death or by using a consort and doing Vajrayana practice with a consort, another taboo subject that we're not supposed to talk about too much. And in the, the uh, tantric tradition, if you're a monk, you're not supposed to have consorts it's in the Galukpa tradition. The Kagyu and the Nyingma tradition, they they uh, have uh, alternative versions of monkness that seems to allow them to have uh, consorts. But uh, the most famous, so the, the famous, so the Galukpas uh, achieve full enlightenment when they die. They don't achieve full enlightenment, the monks, during this lifetime because they don't do 
practice with a consort. So famously, uh, Tsongkhapa was said to have delayed his full enlightenment until death because he didn't want to destroy his monastic vows. He wanted to continue to uphold them as a way of uh, setting an example for his followers, which they uphold to this day. I noticed this one has John Donne as, I guess, the author of this section. But he's not, is it, he's not purely Galupa, is he? Hasn't, no, isn't he? he isn't. I mean, he was into Nyingma. I think he's into Nyingma as well. Yeah, or I'm not sure. Kagyu or Nyingma. But yeah, so he's not he purely was, Galupa, even though I guess he's yeah. representing that view here, but he himself yeah. is not. That's correct. Yeah, I think his roots are Galupa. I think he's from the the Virginia thing, the Jeffrey Hopkins world. Uh, but I know he was working with Pakcho Krimpeche, who's Kagyu Nyingma. And I think some other teacher before. I, I'm kind of not for, I'm not remembering for sure, so I don't want to say something that's not right. But I think even bef other than that, yeah, I think there's another sort of era of his. Yeah. So I don't know. I just wondered whether the. Uh, I'm curious as to really what view he's. Is he deliberately presenting? I think he's deliberately presenting the Galupa right. view. Yeah, yeah. But it's very interesting. Yeah. Be interesting to find a comparable explanation of the process of this in this detail from like Kagyu or Nyingma, uh, and see what it says. But there is a place in uh, like there's a lot of books that describe the death process and what happens at death and so interesting to look at those anyway um we'll get further into gross and subtle vajrayana minds uh, next week i believe right yeah okay by this merit may all obtain omniscience may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth old age sickness and death from the ocean of samsara may i free all beings thank you nice to see you be well and see you soon thanks derek